The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this week we've been talking about the third noble truth, the truth of the cessation of suffering. And um, the most common way in which this formulation uh, appears in the suttas of what's usually called the Four Noble Truths appears without the title Four Noble. It just It says, for example, someone understands or one should understand suffering, the arising of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the practice leading to the cessation of suffering. Um, and then, uh, because in the so-called first sermon of the Buddha, he goes into some detail, and he calls it the four noble truths, the noble truth of the of suffering, the noble truth of the arising of suffering, the noble truth of cessation of suffering, and the noble truth of the um, uh, practice leading to the cessation of suffering. Because that's considered the first sermon, it's often given a lot of emphasis, and there's explanations there about what the, each of these are. And those explanations are, given, are treated as being definitive, like this is the true definition of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are held up as being the central teachings of the Buddha. Paradoxically, or oddly enough, uh, the Buddha very rarely actually explained the Four Noble Truths in the suttas. For some reason, either he didn't talk about it much, or it wasn't preserved, all that he talked about. There's only five places where he explicitly explains what these are. And people who do text-critical work say these, most of these appear to be later interpolations, the product of later editors. And so it seems like the Buddha didn't uh, teach much, actually, about the Four Noble Truths. And uh, it's kind of shocking to hear. So much some, some scholars say that he actually didn't teach the Four Noble Truths. But it's, uh, uh, what he did teach over and over again is this, there is suffering, there's the arising, cessation, and the practice leading to the cessation. So in the so-called first sermon of the Buddha, um, uh, that is taken, uh, understood, or interpreted uh, to be one of the most common ways of understanding uh, the Four Noble Truths. And that would be, I think it's fair to say, it's the idea that suffering has a cause, and that cause is craving, and with the cessation of craving, is a cessation of suffering. It's a powerful teaching, it's a powerful interpretation. And to, uh, in all kinds of areas in our everyday life, it's just useful to consider what's the cause or what's my contribution to the suffering I'm having. And if I look deeply and see my contribution, there's something probably that is a, uh, a compulsion, a drivenness, a thirst for something, something we can't really stop, a drive that we can't stop that's represented by this word craving. And, uh, and that can be very useful to look at that and see where we're compulsive, see where we're addicted, where we're attached. And then to f- experience letting go of it or having it come to an end and feeling how wonderful that is. That's great. 
in all kinds of areas in life, in everyday life and situations, this is a useful analysis. As, medita- as people meditate, the Four Noble Truths are interpreted different ways. As the mind gets quieter, and one of the ways, the second interpretation of the Four Noble Truths, is it has to do with the conditions that come together to cause suffering. And there's lots of conditions that cause suffering. And some people emphasize conditionality. Don't give uh, necessarily pride of place to craving. Sometimes people give pride of place to ignorance. Ignorance is the primal condition for craving, for suffering itself. And, um, and as we meditate, we are relaxing uh, the, the conditioning factor, faculties of the mind the ways in which the mind is thinking and conceiving and constructing our world that we're doing. Meditation is a process of stilling that and quieting that. And we can still, we can quiet it to a great degree so we're not really thinking about the external world anymore. We're not really thinking much anything, just a lot of peace and subtleness. And, um, and a lot of suffering can disappear when all the f- uh, constructive, conceiving aspects of the mind, the memory aspects of the mind, have quieted down. And um, it's kind of like taking a shower and becoming clean. It feels so good to go back in the world when you're clean. When meditation has kind of been that inner shower, then we come back into the world kind of cleaner, fresher, uh, with uh, fresher eyes, not carrying the burden of, of our preoccupations. And often that's, we see much more opening in life and see much more freedom in life then. And because we've, we relax the conditions, not necessarily the cause of our suffering, but sometimes the cause turns out to be only one factor that contributes to the suffering, the so-called central cause. And just relaxing deeply um, kind of uh, doesn't give that cause enough uh, strength to really be troublesome for us. And um, the, um, um, so that's a second interpretation. And so there, the, the, the cessation of suffering has to do with the cessation of these conditions. And as I'm saying, the deeper the meditation go, the deeper the, the stilling of these conditions. And it's, it's quite wonderful. As the condition gets stiller and stiller, and quieter and quieter, the conceiving mind, the constructing mind that's interpreting, telling stories, labeling things kind of quiets down and we start living in the flow of direct sensations, direct experience, uh, the coming and goings of sounds, of taste, of smells, of touch, body sensations, thoughts and all that. And this coming and going of stuff is quite phenomenal. And I want to tell a little story uh, in, from the suttas. Uh, and it's uh, my interpretation of the context for the story, it's, n- it's not there in the suttas, was a bunch of monks were sitting around the campfire and just telling one yarn after another about the great mythological um, miracles associated with the Buddha's life. And uh, they're outdoing each other with stories about, uh, you know, uh, when the Buddha was born, he used he uh, came out and was immediately walked seven steps. Um, he was um, conceived in, uh, immaculately. He was, the gods received him and held him up so he wouldn't have touched the ground. And it's just, I mean, the stories, the cosmological, mythological stories are just quite phantasmagoric, fantastic. 
And so they're going around and uh, they're, they're talking about this. Actually, Ananda is, is a Buddhist disciple saying all these wonderful miracles. And he's saying, this is a wonderful miracle. This is miraculous. And then at the end of all these miracle stories, the Buddha says, as kind of like the climax of the story or the punchline, all the earlier part is, is a setup for what the Buddha is going to say. And the Buddha says, I'll tell you what is a miracle. When I have a thought, I see the arising of a thought, the persistence of a thought, and the ceasing of a thought. When I have a feeling, I see the arising of a feeling, the persistence of the feeling, and the passing away of the feeling. When there are perceptions, I see the the rising of the perception, the persistence of it, and the disappearance of it. That is a miracle. So all these miracles that about the Buddha's miraculous so-called powers, that's not really that important. What's really important is this ability to uh, really see uh, or be present for the flow and the change of how things come and go, arise and pass, and all that. And what that does is uh, to see that is to really see, you see, oh, this is where freedom is found. To let the flow unfold, the coming and going unfold, and release the holding on it, the pushing, the resistance to it, to um, to kind of like open up to the space at the end of a ceasing, before there's an arising, where there's nothing to hold on to, nothing to cling to, to kind of, in a sense, kind of fall into that space um, and experience the freedom of the heart and the mind, uh, the radical letting go. And uh, and so here, in this third interpretation of uh, the cessation of suffering, has to do with that is um, uh, it's seeing two things, the arising and ceasing, all in constant nature of things, to be in that flow, and to see that there's where freedom is found, that there's profound liberation that we found in being in that flow and not stopping it, not resisting it, and just allowing it to move through us without any movement of clinging or holding or contracting or craving itself. And the deepest liberation um, that the Buddha over and over emphasized comes from this deep meditative experience of inconstancy. And uh, we see this in uh, that um, uh, there's a particular chapter of the book called The Connected Discourses of the Buddha that's a chapter on the truths. Uh, and it there, there's uh, three different ways in which these f- so-called Four Noble Truths are presented. The first presents it only as this is arising, this is suffering, this is the arising, this is the ceasing, and this is the practice for the cessation of suffering. And those who really understand this, really penetrate this, become the uh, first stage of awakening. Rather than having a four-stage model of awakening, this text has a two-stage model. And this person is called a trainee because now they know what the practice is about. Someone who's let go deeply and experiences deep freedom uh, in the world of inconstancy knows what this freedom the Buddha is talking about. And they they know how to train now. They know what it's all about. So they're a trainee. Someone who does a training of really resting and flowing and repeatedly kind of letting go into this inconstant flow of experience 
uh, at some point they become fully awakened. At that point, this text says, this is the, f- the noble truth of the arising of suffering, the noble truth of the, cessa- of the cessation of suffering and the noble truth of the practice leading to the cessation of suffering. So two levels of this, one without the title for noble truths and one with the title noble truths, one for becoming the first experience of liberation and the other for becoming fully liberated. The Buddha was fully liberated and they wanted to kind of describe what was it with someone who's fully liberated like a Buddha that no longer meant that he became reborn. Because as the centuries went along in Buddhism, the idea of not being reborn became increasingly important in these texts. And that's where this the first sermon of the Buddha was born, was to explain that issue, how the Buddha doesn't get reborn. He doesn't, and the text specifically says, as I said last week, um, uh, it's uh, the arising of suffering is that craving that leads to rebirth. And the cessation of suffering is the cessation of that very craving that leads to rebirth. And that, but that first sermon of the Buddha then has become the primary reference point for what the Four Noble Truths are. But in fact, there's something more profound, more important in these texts than that particular sermon. And that is um, seeing a thought as it arises, seeing it as it persists, and see it when it passes away. Seeing a feeling when it arises, persists, and ceases seeing sensations, seeing everything as a flow of inconstant phenomena. Easier said than done, but the result of it uh, is uh, liberation, and that is described, uh, the people who are liberated are the happy ones, are the peaceful ones. Uh, There's a, a wonderful experience of happiness and peace and delight that can come from liberation. And, um, and that's the other side of suffering, to go through suffering to the other side and come out and really taste and experience a profound form of joy and happiness that comes with a cessation of suffering. So that's the uh, neuroda, the cessation of the third noble truth. And, um, and the next week I'll do the practice leading to the cessation of suffering. The, four, the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. So thank you so much. <laughs>